0: Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Global Minnesota's Great Conversations for the month of February. Our program tonight the Coldest War Great Power Competition in the Arctic was, of course, perfectly timed for the end of our Arctic period of this winter here in Minnesota. But we know there are people watching from all over the planet, probably not facing the Arctic conditions, but people who are very interested in what is happening to this very unique and very special part of the planet, a part of the planet that I was fortunate enough to visit and to work in um, when I was much, much younger. My name is Mark Ritchie, and I have the honor of serving as president of Global Minnesota. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, 70 years old this year, whose mission is advancing international understanding and engagement. And we do that by connecting people, Minnesotans to the world, the world to Minnesota. And now, thanks to the magic of Zoom and digital platforms, we're able to connect everybody on the planet on these topics of global interest like the arctic these programs are possible and free to the public because of the contributions of our generous supporters and for the contributions of all of you who have become members of global minnesota over the years your membership helps to keep these programs going and we do them in partnership with partners that have been very, very important over the years when we were able to meet in person, Uh, the Minneapolis Central Library and Friends of the Hennepin County Library and the Landmark Center in St. Paul. We look forward to the days when we can again offer in-person programming, Uh, but for now we're seeing the opportunities and we're taking advantage of the ability to be truly global and also to reach every corner of the state of Minnesota. Many of the topics that we speak about and bring in expert um, presenters, we draw from the Great Conversations policy program of the Foreign Policy Association Great Decisions uh, national program that they offer, discussion groups all over the country, looking at eight or nine important foreign policy topics each year. These are held in schools and churches and home, But we partner here in the Twin Cities area with the Edina Senior Center, Friends of the Edina Library, the Washburn Library, and the Plymouth Library, and they're our partners for the program this evening. We're very fortunate tonight to welcome as our guest speaker, Heather Connolly, who's the Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She served in many different roles in the public and private sector, four years as executive director of the Office of the Chairman of the Board of the American Red Cross, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasia with responsibility for relations, the bilateral relations with the countries of Northern and Central Europe. I believe she ended her foreign policy career in the U.S. Embassy there in Helsinki in Finland. But she began her career in the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs. I have the honor of serving as Minnesota's civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army. And in that position, I'm very aware of how important it is, how crucial it is that our diplomatic wing of our government, our military and security wings that all of the pieces of our uh, institutions of public service know and work together well, and they are staying abreast of the issues that are emerging. Few issues have emerged with such a a kind of speed and intensity as what is happening in the Arctic. We'll hear tonight about some of the reasons why that change and that acceleration of interest has occurred. We're very, very fortunate to be able to welcome to our program tonight, Heather Connolly. Heather, please join me on the, on the Zoom screen. Thank you very much again. I'm turning it over to you.
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much for that very generous introduction and thank you so much to Global Minnesota for this kind invitation. I always like to joke when I begin uh, my Arctic presentation, I always welcome uh, our audience to join me and go, and go to the Arctic with me. I feel like right now, for most of the United States, the Arctic has come to us. Uh, but in any event, uh, what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is really take you through some of the major trends, the opportunities, and the challenges that are in the Arctic. Um, this power presentation is really to show you those pictures. The Arctic is such a visual story. It's such a compelling story. Uh, and then when we're finished with this tour, uh, this geopolitical tour of the Arctic, I look forward to my discussion with John and receiving your questions. So Tim, let's go to the first slide, please. So before we start and embark on our Arctic journey, it's really essential for you to get your mental map. Uh, so often when I talk to American audiences about the Arctic, it's really hard. We, we see Alaska far, far away from the continental US. It, it's not really the right way to look at the Arctic. You have to sort of look at down and think about the North Pole as being at the center. And that changes your perspective completely. I want you to look at Russia. Look how large Russia is. It is the largest Arctic coastal state. Russia has over 51% of the Arctic coastline. Look how large Canada is. Uh, That is the Canadian archipelago, uh, a very strong Arctic uh, nation and its Arctic identity. Look at the kingdom of Denmark from Greenland. We don't often call Denmark the kingdom of Denmark, but you have to because Greenland uh, is a part of a kingdom where G- Greenland under home rule controls the economic fortunes of Greenland, but Denmark, Copenhagen controls foreign and security policy. And we'll talk a little bit about that. When we talk about China's investment, now look at Alaska, look at the United States. That's a pretty small piece of Arctic real estate. Um, But I want you to focus in, before we leave this map, uh, This the very narrow space between Russia and the United States, Alaska. That's the Bering Strait. And if there is a lot of additional uh, commercial shipping and traffic that will travel through those very narrow straits. The United States and Russia have a very large border, a maritime border that they have to manage responsibly even when tensions are high between our countries. So uh, before we leave this map, let me just share. There are five Arctic coastal states. Of course, Russia, the United States, Canada, Denmark because of Greenland and Norway. So we call those the Arctic Five. Just remember those are the five coastal states but we have Finland, Sweden, and Iceland. They don't have Arctic coastline, but of course, uh, Finland and Sweden have territory within the Arctic Circle, and Iceland just barely misses that definition. So the eight countries, the five coastal states, plus Finland, Sweden, and Iceland, they uh, constitute the membership of an organization. I'll tell you a little bit more about the Arctic Council, and we call them the Arctic Eight. So you have your mental map, keep that picture in mind as we talk about the important trends of the Arctic. Next slide, please. So you cannot begin a conversation about the geopolitics of the Arctic without understanding our history. So these two photos in some ways um, are the most, you know, sort of recent modern history of, of the United States really understanding why the Arctic is so important to U.S. national security and defense. So the picture to my left, uh, the Murmansk supply lines. So during the Second World War, the Soviet Union was an important ally of the United States and the Allied powers. It was vital to keep the Soviet Union in uh, in that battle. We had to keep them supplied. So one of the most vital shipping routes was Allied supply routes to Murmansk, Russia. Uh, Incredible heroism, incredible stories. So we understood what makes the Arctic so strategic is it shortens the time and distance, it shortens supply lines, um, it shortens communication lines. So that we understood how important that was for keeping and sustaining the Soviet Union uh, in the Second World War. Now the other picture is actually about territorial defense of of eventually when Alaska uh, joined uh, the United States, uh, officially uh, US territory. And that was the defense of the Aleutian Islands from Japanese attack and invasion. We then began to understand how important that, um, the, that chain represented to uh, US national security. So shortening distances and defending the United States, those are two themes that will continue to echo their importance today. Next slide, please. So at the end of the Second World War, of course, and as the Cold War began, we continue to understand the strategic imperative of the Arctic. Of course, uh, President Eisenhower and the uh, Eisenhower administration began to build a missile defense shield, if you will, that first shield, uh, the distant early warning line or dew line. Again, it's architecture. I will show you pictures of it today. It exists. It was about detecting early warning signals of Soviet attack. Of course, our allies swiftly became our adversary. But it was the same arc in the same geography of the north because that was how the soviet union could reach the united states very quickly either uh, from um, uh, bombers uh, air capabilities or submarine capabilities so with canada the north american um, air defense what we call norad today uh, still stands very much so we continue to understand why the Arctic was so important to protecting the United States. Next slide, please. And again, let me show you the modern uh, strategic imperative of the Arctic. So today, this picture to your left is in Alaska, Fort Greeley. That is where some of our most advanced uh, missile defense interceptors are based. Uh, Much of that that force is to detect and hopefully never have to, shoot down uh, North Korean missiles. And that picture to your right is the most northernly U.S. Air Force Base in the world, Thule Air Force Base in Greenland. Again, uh, these were part and parcel of important strategic locations during the Cold War. Remember that picture of Greenland that I showed you? Uh, this is where the U.S. can protect uh, the avenues of approach to the United States through, uh, through the North Atlantic. So again, you're seeing where that history uh, turned into our modern day protection of the United States through missile defense and early warning uh, of, of missile defense of missiles incoming coming to the United States. Next slide, please. So that was your history lesson of why the Arctic was so important to US national security. But let me tell you why we are talking about the Arctic uh, today in such urgent and strident terms. And that is because we are seeing some of the most profound environmental transformation anywhere in the world. The Arctic is warming two to three times faster than any place in the world. And so you can see on the picture again to my right of the summer Arctic sea. And Mark, you were uh, stepping your toe into some of that cold, cold water uh, when when you were swimming in the Barents Sea as a young man. But what's so remarkable about the environmental transformation in in the maritime space is the the great diminishment of the polar ice cap. So that picture in red uh, of the outline used to be how thick and expansive uh, the the Arctic polar ice cap was in 1979. That picture that you're seeing of the white today is the present uh, ice cap. Now again, every year this changes. Sometimes we have an extremely diminished polar ice cap due to weather conditions and and other anomalies. Sometimes it's a little bit more expansive but it has shrunk dramatically. So this ice um, is unlike the the previous ice cap, it's very thin, it's called young ice. So when we have severe storms in the Arctic, this ice can break, it can shift, it can be very, very unpredictable. Now, the difference here, some people confuse this, and it's very easy to confuse it. The diminishment of the polar ice cap does not do anything to affect sea level rise. The picture to my left of the Greenland ice sheet that is what impacts ice uh, sea level rise. So this vast uh, glacier, this glass, vast ice sheet sitting on Greenland has been rapidly shrinking. And that is what is calving and going into uh, the Atlantic and melting and causing sea level rise. So these two phenomena are some of the most significant transformation that we're seeing. And the reason that the United States is experiencing, in part, we believe, and there's a lot of, you know, questions about exactly what is happening. The 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 diminishment of the polar ice cap has, has affected the jet stream and this, what is called an Arctic oscillation belt. It swirls around the North Pole. When it shrinks, uh, it weakens, that the jet stream starts to weaken and then it starts to get very wavy and it starts to dip. And it can allow that very cold polar, uh, polar temperatures to, to plunge into the United States. This is in part what we're seeing today. So there's the really direct relationship to the Arctic environmental trans, uh, transformation into what we are experiencing in our weather patterns today. So this is a perfect example. We don't know completely how, why it's changing this way, but this is certainly where uh, a majority of scientists believe uh, the shrinking of the polarized cap is having an immediate effect on our uh, weather patterns. Next slide, please. So this isn't the only issue on the polarized cap. We are seeing very profound changes in the Arctic Ocean itself. So that picture to the left, the algae bloom. Uh, again, as Arctic waters warm, um, the plankton and, and uh, other things are allowed to to start to to emerge, and then we see fishing stocks starting to go towards cooler waters. Uh, and of course, algae blooms can can potentially uh, be productive for fishing stocks, but on the other hand, they can destroy. Uh, very productive uh, fishing stocks as well, depending on the toxicity of that algae bloom. So in some ways this sort of sees the shifting patterns of of both the plankton and fishing stocks. It also can be very toxic for very productive fishing uh, areas. The other picture is ocean acidification. This is where that carbon dioxide is mixing it's changing the composition of, of the ocean waters. Um, again, this is a very harmful to fishing stocks. Another phenomenon we're seeing worldwide, but we're seeing it particularly in the Arctic, is microplastics. As, as the currents are taking them, they're finding them going into a, a very a strong presence in the Arctic. So lots of difficult changes. Of course, we know indigenous communities rely on mammals, and fishing stocks for their their food security, their livelihoods So these dramatic changes are really uh, impairing um, uh, indigenous communities for their uh, sustenance and their their fishing and hunting grounds. Next slide, please. As I said, there is sort of the, the crisis of this environmental transformation and the challenge, but there is also opportunity. And so, as I mentioned, as those fishing stocks uh, uh, move north for cooler waters, we're seeing an extraordinary abundance, particularly um, in the Bering Sea, and that's uh, in, in near uh, the Barents Sea in Norway, but we're also seeing some of that uh, fishing stock enhancement in, in the Bering sea, uh, Bering sea off of Alaska. Uh, when we could travel uh, pre-pandemic, more and more people wanted to take those cruises through the Canadian Northwest Passage or try to reach the North Pole if they could. So we're seeing increased uh, human activity uh, we're seeing increased fishing stocks. Next slide, please. And of course, when you have a diminishing polar ice cap and a receding ice picture, now we have the potential to dramatically shorten shipping distances between Asia and Europe and North America. So all those squiggly lines that you see to the left, uh, the three main squiggly lines, uh, to use a technical term there, are the major uh, transportation routes across the Arctic Ocean. So the the one that's most heavily used, that's right above Russia, is called the Northern Sea Route. This is going to be the one that's probably the most commercially viable. It is where the ice has receded the most, And it is where Russia wants, in the words of Vladimir Putin, to create the next Suez Canal. He foresees uh, a very heavy commercial use of the Northern Sea route. The the lines that go through the Canadian archipelago to your far left, that's, of course, the Northwest Passage. That route probably will not be used uh, as much, very little. Number one, it's very little infrastructure. Uh, the ice clogging there makes it very difficult to use. Um, and it's just probably not going to be the most viable commercial route. That big red line that you see right across the middle is really the route of the future. That's the transpolar route. This is the route that the Chinese are particularly interested in. They don't necessarily want to go through the Russian Arctic and use Russian icebreakers or have to pay for those services. What they'd like to do is go right across uh, the Arctic and then deliver to uh, ports in in Europe, uh, Iceland uh, and and other uh, access points. It it could potentially uh, shrink shipping times between Asia and Europe by 30%. There's a lot of ifs to that because if weather is good, um, if there's no delays or problems, uh, but this would be something that could potentially be viable uh, in the 2040, 2050 time frame. Uh, every year, China sends a container, a cargo container ship for that transpolar route. They're continuing to test to see if it's viable. Um, and we'll talk a bit about how uh, what China is thinking about the Arctic, but this is certainly one. Uh, Shipping is a major interest because uh, China would like to send its exports as quickly as possible in multiple ways around the world. It also would like to receive energy resources, and we'll talk about that in a second. So let's go to the next slide, please. So um, the picture to your right, the Yamal liquefied natural gas project. This is perhaps the most important and exciting energy development in the Russian Arctic. Um, and it's being uh, constructed and built and with participation by certainly Chinese energy firms. So this project, uh, what makes liquefied natural gas so interesting is that it can be shipped and it can go either East to China and to Asian markets or it can go West and it can supply European markets. Even the United States has received uh, liquefied natural gas. From, um, from the Yamal Peninsula, so it's the United Kingdom. Uh, energy is a huge, hugely important story for Russia. Um, again, uh, the US Geological Survey in a 2008 report uh, surmises that up to 30% of the world's uh, natural gas could be found in the Arctic, upwards of 12 to 13% of oil could be found there. The oil and gas is, is believed to be concentrated in the exclusive economic zones of either Russia, Norway, or the United States. So there's not a dispute about who owns those resources. It's all about whether we should develop them. And i will talk a little bit about the future of energy uh, extraction in the Arctic, but Russia is counting on the Arctic being their new supply of energy. As their Siberian fields are exhausted, they really see this as the future for Russia's um, energy-based uh, economy. But China also sees great opportunity. They want some of those uh, energy supplies uh, to diversify their own interests. And what the picture you're seeing uh, to the left is actually the first uh, Chinese icebreaker. They have now constructed their second icebreaker. This is the Zhuelong. They've constructed the Zhuelong 2. Uh, And they have announced that they are building a nuclear propelled icebreaker. And so China sees these icebreakers as important um, to to their enhancing their scientific presence in the Arctic, but they're interested in that shipping and icebreakers really allow uh, Arctic highways, if you will, in the maritime sense to be used. So we see where icebreaking, capabilities, shipping, energy, those are two really important economic opportunities that countries are eager to exploit. Next slide, please. Now, let's talk a little bit about international law. So you might have seen headlines or seen the race for resources or um, concerns of of, of the Russians planting a flag uh, on, underneath the seabed, on the seabed underneath the North Pole. Those are very uh, stark images. But right now, uh, the Arctic is very well-governed using the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea Treaty, remember I told you about those five coastal states. Those five coastal states have a ton of international legal law that governs their territorial waters, their exclusive economic zones, which stretches to 200 nautical miles, and then of course, around the North Pole, those are international waters. That's the Central Arctic uh, Ocean. And so everyone it respects that. The United States has not ratified the Law of the Sea Treaty. I wish we would, I hope we will, um, but we treat it as international customary law. The other Arctic states have ratified uh, the Law of the Sea Treaty. Now, the one thing you might see in future headlines is that the Russians have submitted scientific claims to extend their outer continental shelf. This is when you supply the scientific data and see if it meets the legal definition. Russia's claims are extensive. They would take uh, pretty large swaths of the seabed uh, near and around the North Pole, but Russia is following international law Um, This is not a cause for concern, but it's something to monitor because other countries like Denmark and Canada have competing claims. Unfortunately, the United States cannot submit its scientific claims to extend its outer continental shelf because we have failed to ratify uh, the Law of the Sea Treaty. So something to watch uh, as far as future claims uh, to extend the outer continental shelf of the coastal states. Next slide, please. Now, let me talk a little bit. We've talked a little bit about the ocean and the importance of the maritime space. But uh, as I mentioned about Greenland and the diminishment of the Greenland ice sheet, we are seeing profound changes um, uh, on land. And so the pictures that you are seeing uh, are caused by permafrost thaw to your left. So buildings, roads, pipelines are collapsing. In fact, last year, last fall, Um, Russia experienced a massive diesel spill, 21,000 tons of diesel spilt into a very uh, ecologically sensitive area near Norilsk, Russia, because a fuel tanker uh, basically shifted and collapsed because it was built on permafrost thaw. Um, And so this is a massive issue that is challenging every Arctic nation particularly Russia. Again, when you have the most Arctic uh, territory, you're going to suffer, you're going to get the benefits, uh, obviously, from the economic opportunity, but you're really going to suffer from the transformation. The picture, uh, the other picture is coastal erosion. So in the United States, um, FEMA is having to, in the Department of Homeland Security, is having to relocate uh, coastal villages. They are simply, their villages are so close to the water, because again, subsistence assistance uh, hunting and fishing. They are near their food sources. Their villages are literally collapsing into the ocean because of coastal erosion. So when that ice recedes and those storms come come in, the ice used to serve as a buffer. There's no more buffer. You add that to permafrost thaw and you're literally seeing these villages uh, collapse into, into the ocean. Um, so these are just, some examples of environmental challenge. We're also seeing the release of, of methane as the as the permafrost thaws. In Russia, they have had anthrax uh, uh, scares because of, the, of what is being released from the, when the permafrost thaws. We're seeing wildfires, tundra fires, because as the permafrost thaws, um, it, 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 the material dries and is very susceptible to fires. So huge, huge environmental challenges um, as we see this transformation take place. Next slide, please. So we've talked about the history, we've talked about the environmental change, the economic opportunities. So let me tell you a little bit about how the international community is trying to manage all of these uh, incredible changes and challenges. Well, they they create intergovernmental forums like the Arctic Council. So the Arctic Council is made up of those eight Arctic states that I outlined to you at the beginning uh, of the talk. But what makes the Arctic Council so unique and important is that in addition to the eight states, it has at the table representatives of the indigenous communities, named uh, the, the permanent participants. So the human dimension here is really important. There are 4 million people that live in the Arctic. We have major urban centers in the European and Russian Arctic, certainly not the case in the North American Arctic where it's very sparsely populated, but it's important to make sure that we keep the indigenous communities um, very, very much part of the discussions that we're having on sustainable development and environmental protection and mitigation. So the Arctic Council has done great work since 1996 in focusing on environmental protection and sustainable development. Another unique feature of the Arctic Council is it brings in a lot of observer nations like China, like India, like Italy, like Korea, like Germany. It's a very eclectic group of states, but also observing organizations like the World Wildlife Fund. So it's a unique uh, body uh, that is, is doing great environmental impact assessments and work. The other innovation, and this is a picture of, I hate to say it, the only functioning U.S. icebreaker in our inventory, this is the Polar Star. This is the one heavy icebreaker that the U.S. has. Uh, the other icebreaker that we have is a medium icebreaker medium strength icebreaker it's used for science unfortunately last summer it had a catastrophic fire and is being repaired right now so we share the polar star between the south pole antarctica and the arctic it's a it was built in the 1970s and we're hoping it lasts a little bit longer Um, but icebreakers we can talk about that in the q a certainly something that the united states could use a few more of, Um, but the polar star, what that represents is the Arctic uh, council members, the states formed an Arctic uh, coast guard forum, which is a great idea as we help to figure out how we can collectively do search and rescue, oil spill response. We know the commercial and the human activity is increasing in the Arctic. We are going to need all the coast guards and the navies of the Arctic coastal states to participate and work together And so that's a really important collaborative effort. Um, A little fun fact, probably the best relationship we have uh, functionally in the Arctic is the US Coast Guard and the Russian Federal Security Bureau or FSB. Uh, The Coast Guard and the FSB manage that narrow bearing strait and they work together to prevent illegal fisheries. They work together to make sure that if there is um, a problem with a vessel, that they can be rescued. So there's. Some good news that's coming out of the Arctic and collaboration in international cooperation. Next slide, please. But it's not all sunny and rosy. So let's talk about, so I, I always like to start with the optimistic part where we're partnering successfully with Russia and working in the, uh, the Bering Strait uh, region. But there's a lot to be concerned about what Russia is doing militarily in the Arctic. So these are two pictures. Mr. Putin is looking after one of, uh, or overseeing one of the many uh, Russian military exercises that take place in the Arctic. And the other picture is looking at a Russian submarine. So about 12 years ago, Russia really, um, in some ways, had a had a, st- had a strategic awakening um, of the importance of the Arctic. At the end of the Cold War, in some ways, very similar to the U.S. We didn't have to sustain all of that hardware in the Arctic. Uh, We were working together collaboratively and a lot of the Russian bases across their vast coastline, they fell into repair, they had population losses, they were struggling economically. So really there wasn't anything happening. But around 2007, 2008, when Mr. Putin started to work on rebuilding the Russian military and wanted to be treated with respect as a global and great power, he began to rebuild uh, Russia's military presence in the Arctic. There's a lot of good reason why Russia is building military capabilities in the Arctic because they have such an ambitious economic vision. Again, the Suez Canal in the Arctic, you need to have uh, search and rescue centers. You need to make sure you have radar and you know the vessels that are coming in uh, to, to the Russian Arctic. So some of this is completely understandable, but some of it, particularly Russia's military development that is closer to the Norwegian border, it is close to NATO, that has nothing to do with the economic ambitions of Russia. That has all to do uh, with confrontation with the United States and NATO. It's about, in some ways, rekindling Russia's muscle memory Uh, from the cold war so we're seeing a dramatic uptick in russian submarine activity in the north atlantic that is why the united states uh, reconstituted the second fleet in norfolk virginia to continue to monitor that we're seeing where russia is reopening upwards of 50 uh, airfields and bases across the vast russian uh, arctic Uh, they're putting pretty sophisticated aircraft Uh, They're testing new weapons and new missiles, and they are exercising this repeatedly. So they're definitely signaling to us that the Arctic is very important to them. um, And they want to understand that uh, again, like during the cold war, that uh, they will defend uh, certainly their nuclear uh, deterrent, which is based in the Arctic uh, on the Kola Peninsula. So something to watch here very, very clearly. Next slide, please. And again, these are just other pictures of their new military installations. That picture to your left is called the trefoil. These are new modern um, uh, troop uh, housing facilities on very distant Arctic uh, uh, islands. Um, And we're seeing a lot of use of special forces and new equipment that is designed for war fighting in the Arctic. So this is just, again, they're showing us a lot of capabilities in the Arctic. Next Next slide, please. And again, this is a picture. CSIS has done a lot of studying of of, uh, Russia's military um, modernization in the Arctic. Again, this just shows you the significance of of their pattern across the Russian coastline. Next slide, please. Again, more pictures. This is satellite imagery, actually, of radar, newly uh, placed radar. Wrangel Island is 300 nautical miles away from Alaska. And by 2022, Alaska will have the highest concentration of U.S. Uh, aircraft capabilities in the world. Again, it's, it's all about shortening distances. Uh, and so it's, some of this is obviously keeping, keeping some eyes on that. But we're also seeing the development of, of, of new basing, more sophisticated air uh, combat aircraft and airfields that are a little closer to NATO territory. And that's, that's the Katolni Island picture. Next slide, please. So in my last few minutes before we turn to QA, I want to talk a little bit about China's footprint in the Arctic. We talked about uh, China's um, icebreaking capability, um, certainly. Uh, they are also very interested in scientific exploration. China has new research centers in northern Iceland, in Norway, even they've opened one recently with in Russia. But China is also pursuing a lot of economic opportunities in uh, Arctic states. This is a picture of um, the potential of China building three airports in Greenland. And why would China be interested in Greenland? Couple of reasons. Greenland has rare earth minerals. So China has certainly been keen to invest in mineral uh, mining in Greenland. Greenland, again, why we have a, a, an American air base, it's location, location. And they do see the strategic interest. If that transpolar route becomes uh, a possibility, they will want ports, they will want facilities to bring those uh, commodities and products and distribute them across Europe. But this caught the attention of the United States when China wanted to build uh, infrastructure in Greenland. Of course, it was concerned about Thule Air Force Base. And of course, there was concern about uh, China's uh, economics and how often their economic projects have what we call dual use. They can have military capabilities as well. Well, the United States was spurred into action, uh, working with the Danish government. Uh, Denmark became uh, the contributor to building those airports eventually. And of course, Um, We all remember President Trump's very famous tweet that he was quite interested in buying Greenland uh, and the Danish prime minister quickly said, it's not for sale, but it's open for business. Uh, But we wanna make sure we know what business is coming in uh, because it's so strategically important to the United States. So we're watching China as they're seeking to build undersea cables uh, from the Arctic to Asia. Again, shortening distances information if you can get information a second faster because of an undersea cable, you have an advantage. Of course, there's surveillance uh, implications there as well. Um, we're focusing on China's port infrastructure across the Arctic, building railroads. Again, we're very concerned about Russia and China working together, joining forces, and what the implications will be for the United States if they see their economic and security benefits of. China and Russia working together. So next slide, please. Lots of things to talk about. And this is just a site. We have lots of reports and commentaries on our our Arctic research. And we certainly invite you at your leisure to take a look at those if you find those helpful. So with that, I will stop and I look forward to your questions and your comments.
1: Thank you so much, Heather, for that big picture, the history, those incredible photographs, but also bringing us up to date and talking about some of those very special features around that geopolitical circle that you introduced us to right in the beginning. I'm really pleased and very honored to be able to bring our next guest up, the moderator for this evening, John Olson, a Retired commander in the U.S. Navy and now a guest lecturer uh, on uh, international security and national security affairs, Uh, graduated from the uh, uh, Naval Academy in Annapolis and Minneapolis native, Uh, served in Naval Office Intelligence Service, uh, retiring in March in 2011. He's uh, served duty all over the planet, and uh, we're so grateful to have him and his expertise here. And I hope he'll tell us a little more about his uh, weekly National Security This Week radio program. Welcome, John.
2: Uh, Mark, thank you for that uh, kind introduction. And and Heather, I'm uh, very excited to have this uh, short discussion with you. We've got about 15 minutes or so that we can address a couple of uh, important questions. Uh, so let's jump right into it, because I want the, our audience to, to hear some of this. How, uh, how comfortable are you talking about sort of, uh, this is a great power competition discussion tonight, uh, how comfortable are you talking about sort of the balance of power in the military forces in, in the Arctic between uh, the U.S., Russia, uh, maybe Canada, and the other, uh, the other Arctic nations?
0: Yes, you know, it's been, it's been very interesting to watch the evolution of US policy towards the Arctic. I would say, you know, during the Obama administration, the focus on the Arctic was really all about the urgency of climate change, that the Arctic in some ways just absolutely represented how critical it was to begin to manage and mitigate that environmental a transformation. And unfortunately, we just, weren't able to focus as much as I think we should have as Russia began to shift its posture in the Arctic. Of course, we want the Arctic to remain a place of peace and cooperation and stability. That's that's all of our mutual goals. But I think we failed to appreciate important shifts were starting to happen. When the Trump administration came um, uh, on board and then developed a national security strategy that looked at great power competition that said Russia and China are our near-peer military competitors, and we have to, we have to shift in our thinking. It took a little while, but eventually our, our national defense strategy and a lot of the military services started to use that framework, and then they were applying it to the Arctic. And so I would argue, though, the, the, the great power competition is not, both, both China and Russia have strong interest in the Arctic, but they're not the same. And I think in some ways the Trump administration got a little focused, a little too focused I think on China's role in the Arctic, which certainly has emerged. It has called itself in its, in its strategic documents a near Arctic state. It is not a near Arctic state. It has said that, you know, we're not quite sure it's undetermined sovereignty in, in the Arctic. Of course, it is clear the law of the sea provides all the sovereignty and, and the legal framework that we need. There, China right now is focusing on the economics of the Arctic, as I said, shipping and fishing and energy and the science, because of course, the climate is impacting, the Arctic is impacting China in in the mid-latitudes as well. So they have absolutely every right. They're an observer of the Arctic Council. But what concerns me right now, which I think we need to refocus ourselves, is Russia uh, and their military military positioning and what they're demonstrating to us, they're signaling to us through exercises, through long range bombers, through their submarine activity, they're signaling to us that, um, you know, they, they want to protect their, the Russian Arctic, but this is a little aggressive. And so this has required NATO and the United States to also demonstrate that it has some capabilities in the Arctic. The problem is the United States has a lot of competing interests and our military would like to focus, keep us focused on the challenge that China presents in the Indo-Pacific, and the Arctic is uh, a tough, tough place to allocate resources, build those icebreakers, have ice-strengthened uh, uh, naval vessels. We don't have any currently in the Navy's inventory. So we're trying to work with our allies, demonstrate we have reach and capabilities in the Arctic, but I think we have to take this Russia challenge a little bit more seriously than we have. I fear it's destabilizing. So focus on Russia, Keep a close eye on China, build up American capabilities, and work closely with our allies. I think that will be the the ticket.
2: Let's talk a little bit more about the icebreaker uh, issue. Uh, You mentioned that Polar Star is really the only operational uh, icebreaker that we have in the inventory, and it's a Coast Guard vessel. Uh, You talked about the U.S. Navy wanting to look into hardening some of our uh, U.S. Navy ships for it what is the disparity between russia canada and the united states with regards to icebreakers <laughs> total numbers
0: okay let me let me first caveat say it's not fair to compare numbers so if if russia has 51% of the coastline they need to have a larger icebreaker fleet but i do if we were in a live presentation i would ask our audience you know here's your quiz how many icebreakers does the greatest maritime power in the world possess the United States? Typically I say one and a half, one for the polar star and a half for the the Healy, which is the medium strengthened uh, icebreaker. But now we have one and that one is basically, it stays in Antarctica uh, to, to resupply our research station in Antarctica, it's really not, very present in the Arctic very often. Uh, in fact, COVID has actually, because we can't uh, supply the, the research station uh, in Antarctica, it's actually freed it for the Arctic, which is, which is great. But the United States has had to borrow other nations icebreaking capabilities just to do science. Now, the good news is we, uh, we are purchasing, we are procuring and building in the United States, in Mississippi, a new icebreaker. But that icebreaker probably won't be ready until 2024. Things usually slip, so maybe we say 2025. We may not have an icebreaking capability because the Polar Star was built in the 1970s. Last year it had two catastrophic mechanical failures. They have to go on eBay to buy parts for that thing because it, it just doesn't exist anymore. You know, we can do better than that. The problem is we are really far, far behind. It's gonna take a while for us to even build, you know, replace what we have, not build beyond that. So Canada is gonna be very important to the United States. They are building Arctic patrol vessels. We are gonna to have to work together with our allies in Finland and Sweden that have more capabilities. But again, that's not often what you think of the United States relying on its allies for its capabilities. Usually it's the other way around. I feel that this is something that unfortunately we needed to deal with a decade ago. We all said oh yes we'll study it or it's just too expensive well we're really paying for that lack of foresight here
2: so you mentioned uh, some of the science of, of uh climate change and impacts on the arctic um uh, i i was naval attache at the u.s embassy in helsinki uh, from 2008 to 2011. and even back then i was attending a, a lot of different lectures that were oceanography related that talked about the changing climate and how it would impact the Arctic, how it would uh, melt that uh, multi-year ice into one-year ice, and you covered that really well in your in your lecture. Uh, the feedback loop that we're seeing really impact the Arctic now. Are there estimates that you may have seen that are that are talking about how how quickly we're going to see the polar Sea Route actually open up and be available for, I don't know, four or five, six months out of the year? Uh, what are we lo- really looking at there?
0: Thank you, John. It's a great question. I think, again, I, I try to understand and follow the scientific literature as best I can. I am not a climatologist. I'm not a scientist. But um, what's been surprising to me is all the modeling, all the predictions have been wrong about the Arctic because it, it, it's moved so fast. So where we thought we would be in, in in 2021 is so much faster. So this has really confounded the scientists to your point that they fear that we are at this moment, this inflection moment, where this cycle now, you can't stop it, even if every nation today would decide to keep, you know, do massive environmental mitigation, carbon emission reduction would try to change it, it couldn't stop it because it's now moved the past where because the, the ocean waters are warming. And again, why the polar ice cap is melting, the waters are warmer underneath it. So it's melting it below. And then you have um, this phenomena called black carbon. So that sort of, think of it as like dirt or soot that is brought from industrial pollution and winds. And that black soot sits on top of the ice which uh, you know, attracts and the sun and warms it. So it's being warmed from the top, it's being warmed from the bottom, and that's what's accelerating uh, the polar ice caps diminishment. It is shifting uh, the, the salt and the fresh water, this ocean acidification is changing and altering uh, the actual uh, ocean itself. So it's, it's really, it's happening faster than we had ever anticipated it would. So right now we are seeing across the Russian Arctic and the Northern sea route. In fact, we call the shoulder season, which means you know there's a few summer months when you can uh, ship. Uh, you know, Alaska, Canada, everyone uses those summer seasons to do barge traffic and to do resupply. That season is starting to stretch. Now, uh, our Russian colleagues have a risk appetite that's a little more than I think we could stomach. They sometimes push this well into November to December, and then they have terrible accidents because of, of that risk-taking uh, behavior. So we're already seeing, seeing the length of it um, increase. Are we seeing an increase in, in shipping traffic? Uh, not really. Um, and so this is the big question mark. Um, so as much as there might be great economic opportunity for the Arctic as you know shipping routes become more viable, really, so goes the Arctic, so goes the global economy. When commodities like energy and minerals, iron, zinc, palladium, um, uh, all the 21st century minerals that we need, rare earths, um, when those prices are high, you know, the Arctic becomes a little bit more economically viable. When energy prices plummet or when the economy stumbles, no one really uses this. So there's, there's real questions of whether Russia's very ambitious economic plans are even viable. And so this sets off another series of questions. If Russia has bet everything on the future of the Arctic and it can't develop it. And if we globally transition away from fossil fuels, which we are slowly doing, investors don't want to invest in Arctic exploration because it's controversial in their state, their shareholders say, I don't want to contribute to climate change. You are seeing where people are don't want fossil fuels. So the entire sort of raison d'etre for Arctic economic development is being profoundly questioned right now, in part because in the climate impacts are so severe that it's stopping people from wanting to invest in additional fossil fuels, particularly based in the Arctic.
2: You actually beat me to the punch because I was gonna uh, bring up that that unique situation there where Russia is investing so heavily in fossil fuel development uh, in that region and and the entire world needs to turn turn the corner on fossil fuels to walk it back so that that whole area refreezes uh, to get us back into a normal climate cycle. And as you mentioned, we, we are, are already going to see climate change impacts that are gonna last for a few decades at least, even if we turned everything off today. So uh, some of the things that you talked about a little bit were the indigenous uh, communities that live along the coastlines uh, and the impacts that they've had from coastal erosion and and then the fact that the permafrost is is melting. How is that impacting sort of the, the Arctic Council policy development uh, to, to try and address those things in an integrated way across all of these unique cultures that exist up in the high north?
0: Well, thank you. It's a great question. And I always, because I I so frequently talk about the geopolitics of the Arctic and Russia's military modernization and China's footprint, sometimes it's easy to sort of forget that this this has to be a a people-centric approach. And uh, indigenous communities' way of life are, are, are so deeply challenged, the mental health challenges The fact that there's food insecurity um even fresh water is becoming a challenge and they are seeing in real time the impact of of climate change that what i'm so appreciative of the arctic council is they do have a, a that the permanent participants the indigenous communities are engaged the problem is this this problem is so massive and so overwhelming i have participated in a lot of conferences uh on the arctic and You have a handful of incredible indigenous leaders that are being stretched a thousand ways. Okay, we need to participate in a a meeting of foreign ministers. We need to ensure that there's economic opportunity for our young people. We need to make sure uh, that that, that we are being heard internationally. They are so stretched. Um, They are being approached by countries like China that are willing to give these indigenous communities Vast sums of money, but perhaps to sway them uh, to support a Chinese investment. So we've got to monitor that closely. So we really need to support the indigenous communities. Um, They're under great strain and stress. And um, I think focusing some of our efforts even on, uh, on Alaska that we have Americans um, that are in absolute dire need. They don't have indoor plumbing. Um, their traditional way of life is being challenged very high suicide rate. So this whole issue set, the Arctic Council, through its working groups, is trying to support the indigenous communities. Um, you know We have to find livelihoods and economic opportunities. And as you mentioned, you know when energy prices uh, and if energy projects are changing, we have to give people purpose and meaningful employment. We're going to, have to start diversifying away from fossil fuels, but using the digital economy. We have so much talent in these indigenous communities. how do we bring that closer? How do we connect with that? And how do we support that? It is such an important issue um, for all of us, for all the circumpolar uh, indigenous communities and certainly for our communities in Alaska.
1: Heather and John, that was sort of the perfect question to (laughs) fill out and to bring us to our one hour mark. Thank you both so much for bringing this very important subject into a bright, piece of sunshine, and I understand both of you have uh, other ways that people could get information, certainly going to the website and connecting with the radio program. Um, I want to urge all of the viewers, you can get more of this direct information at the Global Minnesota website. Uh, There you can also access uh, prior programs, other great discussions like these, Um, and you can register for um, the next big thing, which is our uh, World Health Day coming up on April 7th, it's a uh, something that the World Health Organization takes the global um, responsibility for coordinating. The theme this year, health equity, is something we're all talking about, whether it's global with vaccine or local disparities. But we'll also be hearing from representatives and people from around the world, from all continents, about how other people are tackling uh, some of these issues and check all of that out. And if you are not yet a member, we urge you to join. And if you are a member, of course, we thank you again for that support. John, Heather, thank you so much for joining us here, bringing us into a new way of thinking, but also giving us the inspiration and the real encouragement Uh, That we need to be informing ourselves, we need to be talking to our policymakers, we need to be remembering the indigenous communities, and thinking about all the multiple angles that we discussed this evening. This is a very important part of the planet, but maybe most important, it's a canary in the coal mine, it's a place where we can see, if we continue down this path without tackling these climate issues, the level of destructiveness. Um, that we could see. So thank you again for joining us this evening for Global Minnesota's great conversation. Have a good evening. Thank you again to all our viewers. Good night.